0: Welcome to Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I want to talk today a little bit about the methods in which we measure blood glucose at the bedside. And Let's go back a little bit in in years. When I was a surgical resident, you could always tell a good surgical resident because they typically had a GUIAC card and the developer in their pocket so that when they did their rectal exam in the emergency room or on the general history and physical of their patients, they had the guaiac card immediately available and would be able to tell that the patient's stool was either guaiac positive or guaiac negative. However, with the development of quality improvements and point-of-care testing, we were deemed unsuitable to be able to carry a, a guaiac card. You could do surgery and take out somebody's appendix and maybe repair their ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, but we didn't have the ability to sit there and, and uh, wipe stool on a guaiac card and add a couple drops of developer to determine whether the color of the paper was purple or not. That had to be into the realm of point-of-care testing and required a quality improvement program. And more and more of those types of programs came along, such that even a pH paper, even though that you might have a bachelor's degree in chemistry or organic chemistry, that in a clinical situation that if a patient needed to have a pH test because they were covered with acid or base, that you had to to undergo an in-service to assess whether you can actually read a piece of litmus paper. And hence, this is the world that we live in regards to point-of-care testing. Not to sound overly bitter because I'm i'm really not I think a lot of that is is, is important to assure that the results that we 're getting from our assessments at the bedside and so forth are appropriate. It was part of our standard routine as a medical student to do to do um, uh, gram stains on patients, particularly in the medical service every floor had a microscope and we would do gram stains and, and have a culture uh, or a, a bacterial uh, um, uh, gram stain al- almost immediately when looking at urine or sputum or what have you. Well, we know that in, in today's modern intensive care unit, we've done podcasts on this before and we'll probably have a podcast on this in the future, hopefully in the near future, on uh, insulin management and glucose management in the intensive care unit. There's been numerous studies that have been published that show that patients whose blood sugar is really out, running out of control have higher morbidity and mortality in the intensive care unit. Well, let's focus on how we get that data. In most intensive care units, how we obtain that data on the glucose is obtained through what? It's obtained through a blood side glucometer. And what is what do we know about that technology? When we look at say instance like the the Vandenberg data that was done where? It was done in Europe. Well We know that uh, our friends in Europe and in the United States that I can't take my electric razor to Europe and not use some sort of adapter. Our our DVDs don't work over there uh, and their DVDs don't work over here. We need to use adapters for our computers and so forth. That there's differences in in some of the technology that's used in Europe versus the United States. If you're from Europe you get very frustrated or if you're American and go to Europe if you don't have a right SIM card you can't use your cell phone which is incredibly frustrating. However are all of our ICU technologies the same in the United States and Europe? And the answer is no. When you look at the way the Vandenberg studies were done, for instance, with their glucometers, uh, the glucometers there are what's called non-plasma corrected. When you take a blood sugar from a patient and send it to the laboratory, you are looking at a plasma glucose, which is different than the glucose that you may see when you do a venous or an arterial or a capillary stick and put that on a glucometer, because that's really looking um, at a, a whole blood glucose, and those are actually different numbers. When the Vandenberg studies were done, the glucometers are non-plasma corrected, where the glucometers in the United States are plasma corrected, and this is a, a variance of about, maybe perhaps 10%, depending on what information you're looking at. When we look at somebody who is on a pulse oximeter, just to change gears, for instance, we tell people that you want a pulse oximeter reading of greater than 92%. How did we get to that 92% value? Well, we got to that 92% value because when we look at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, we know that that upper shoulder of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve sits at roughly 90%. And at a saturation of 90%, we have a PO2 on a blood gas of Roughly 60%, or excuse me, a PO2 is 60 millimeters of mercury. So PO2 60 correlates to a saturation of 90%. Well, why do I want to keep my sat greater than 92%? Why not 90? Well, what is the variance allowable on a pulse oximeter? It's plus or minus 2%. So if I let somebody sit a pulse oximeter of 90%, well, their saturation in actuality may be between 88 and 92%. So since we're talking about the, someone's ability to oxygenate, we want to be on the safe side of that, and we set our standard up to 92%, and hence maintain a sat greater than 92%. Well, what is the accepted variability of a glucometer? Keep in mind, glucometers were not designed, developed, and sold with the intent for intensive insulin management intensive care units. They were designed to assist in the outpatient management of somebody who has ambulatory diabetes. It's an outpatient instrument. And what is the acceptable variance by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States for a glucometer? It's 15%. So what does that mean? Well, that means if you have a glucometer, and that means that if you take a blood sugar and you measure it and it's 80%, it could be 15% above 80 or 15% below 80. And what's that number? Well, that means your blood sugar could be between 68 and 92. Well, do you want your blood sugar to be between 68 and 92? What if your blood, your glucometer says 60? Plus or minus 15% means your blood sugar is between 51 and 69. Now, you may be comfortable with a, a blood sugar of 69 or 65, but are you so comfortable if your blood sugar has, if your patient has a blood sugar of 51 and you're not actually aware of that? To that end, we really have to assess that wh- how are we using the glucometer and, and the assessment of blood sugar in our patients. We're not saying that the management of tight uh, glucose control in the intensive care unit is not something we should do. There, one thing is there's clearly not agreement on what the numbers are. If you look at the surviving sepsis guidelines that was recently published in Critical Care Medicine in January of uh, 2008, and this is clearly something we need to discuss in the future, you don't see a number there. The Society of Critical Care Medicine and Uh, Aspen, uh, which is the Association of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, currently are trying to develop consensus guidelines on the management of hyperglycemia in the critically ill. And despite all of that brain power and the ever-expanding body of knowledge and and literature, there doesn't seem to be a number in which people uh, agree. So when people sit there and they drive a stake in the ground and say that we absolutely have to have a blood sugar between 80 to 110, I, I would I would take a step back from that because if we go back to looking at the glucometers in Europe versus the glucometers here in the United States, we're using different types of instruments. And some societies have said that uh, a a non-plasma corrected glucometer that's not glucose oxidase based uh, in Europe versus a plasma corrected glucometer in the United States that it uses glucose oxidation based technology that an 80 to 110 in Europe is probably more equivalent to 90 to 120 in the United States. This is not taking into account the variability that we see on these instruments of a plus or minus 15%, and that is under best-case scenario. There's a wonderful editorial in Mayo Clinic Proceedings in April 2008, and the author is uh, uh, Brenda Fahri, and if I I mispronounce your name, Dr. Fahri, I apologize in advance. The reason why I like this editorial so much is because it really supports many of my biases. But what it points out is that there is a growing impetus uh, among academics that really question um, the utility in, in um, maintaining uh, a normal glycemic uh, or euglycemia in what appears to be a rather, rather heterogeneous population in adult ICUs. And some of these authors are Van Harbeck and, and Chess in 2007 of which one of the authors was Vandenberg. And that uh, article is titled, Type Blood Glucose Control with Insulin in the Intensive Care Unit, Fact and Controversies. Crinsley and colleagues wrote an article in Critical Care Medicine in 2007 titled, Severe Hypoglycemia in Critically Ill Patients, Risk Factors and Outcomes. Bellamo and colleagues uh, wrote an article in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2005. This is actually, uh, it was interesting. This is uh, glycemic control in the Intensive Care Unit, Why We Should Wait for the Nice Sugar uh, Trial. Eggie and colleagues in american journal of uh, respiratory and critical care medicine 2006 so those who would make us think that this this issue has been decided uh, i think are are being a little bit intellectually dishonest now let me start out by saying that I believe the control of blood sugar in the intensive care unit is an important thing. I think that we do have good evidence that show that once we get to a blood sugar of greater than one hundred and fifty, we see glycosylation of white blood cells, poor migration, and certainly an increase, if not a exponential increase, in in septic related complications. But let's stay based not from what my beliefs are, but let's look at the evidence. There is only one prospective randomized trial that has been shown to decrease ICU morbidity and mortality with tight glucose control, and that is the Vandenberg study in the New England Journal of Medicine of 2001. And when you look at the numbers on that, that's not tremendously powered. That is a single institutional trial. It's level B type data. Single. It's prospective randomized, single institutional. Uh, so things are well controlled, But since it's a single institution, not multi-institutional, one would argue that perhaps it's difficult to generalize the findings of that. It has been challenged because of patient population issues, feeding protocols, mortality, and the timing of the intensive insulin therapy. Three more recent prospective randomized trials uh, failed to duplicate the benefit of that trial. And those papers are the um, uh, Vandenberg trial. This was the um, one published in 2006, uh, the uh, trial um, by um, Brunkhorst and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. And uh, subsequent to that, excuse me, the other one is uh, Pressier and colleagues in critical care medicine in 2007. The second paper uh, is something I actually probably need to do a little bit more of a discussion on in perhaps a second uh, podcast. Uh, now, these three trials also reported, and I'm reading from uh, the editorial written by Fari and colleague, uh, but these three studies also reported substantial hypoglycemia glucose levels below 40 milligrams per deciliter. Okay, now they're defining hypoglycemia at 40 milligrams per deciliter. I don't know how many people are comfortable uh, saying that they would allow their blood sugar to sit at 42 or 45 and say that it's um, um, they're comfortable with a hypoglycemia of that range. Well, let's talk about hypoglycemia in the critically ill. How do we diagnose hypoglycemia? Well, we've learned in medical school that the symptoms of hypoglycemia are typically um those of tachycardia, diaphoresis, and, and just the generalized anxiety. And those symptoms are typically mediated through a catecholamine response. Well, what are some of the other things we look at to improve survival or perhaps decrease complications in an intensive care environment? And one of those is beta blockade. Large numbers of our patients are receiving beta blockers either as cardiac protective or as an anti-catabolic type thing, something like we see in a burn unit, and the people are deeply sedated. So this actually sets patients for a situation of hypoglycemic unawareness. So, obviously, when we're monitoring people for uh, their blood sugars in the intensive care unit, we want to maintain, if we are going for that normal range of 80, out of 10, we want to make sure the patient is not hypoglycemic and that the brain does not suffer any of the consequences of neuroglucopenia. Uh, close monitoring of the plasma whole blood glucose levels in the intensive care unit requires an understanding of the monitoring technique used and its limitations. Uh, this entails understanding how a point-of-care glucometer functions, the instrument's accuracy and precision, and expected standards of accuracy. So again, do you really know that your glucometer under its best situation is plus or minus 15%? Uh, in this uh, April uh, edition of uh, April 2008 of Mayo Clinic Proceeding, there's a, a paper in there by Dashi and colleagues, and what they did in this particular study was they took a, a pulse oximeter, and his pulse oximeter had a signal quality indicator of poor perfusion, and they basically uh, measured um, uh, four glucoses obtained um, from tr- uh, for point of care testing at the bedside using a glucometer versus those sent to a reference laboratory, and they looked at those under situations of poor perfusion versus those uh, si- uh, of uh, an adequate uh, adequate perfusion. And what they found was that the glucometer measured uh, varied from reference laboratory by 20% or more in 15% of the capillary glucose samples, and 7% of the whole blood samples. So the difference in the, in the variance depended, again, were you taking the blood from the capillary or from whole blood? Therefore, Porticaire, uh results can often overestimate than underestimate glucose values compared to the reference laboratory results. Therefore, patients who have low perfusion index had the most substantial disagreements. In this article by Dashi and colleagues reminded us of the limitations of using capillary samples in critically ill adults, and the need for physicians to recognize potential pitfalls of the technologies. Well, what are some of the other things that may make your what you perceive as an accurate blood sugar measurement at the bedside inaccurate? Well, there's a lot of medications. Uh, we talked initially about where is the blood taken from? Uh, is it taken? Is it a serum level? Is it plasma? Is it whole blood? Is it taken from the capillary site? Uh, is there too much blood on the gl- glucose strip or too little? If there's too little, it can result in, in lower levels. Too much can lead to higher levels. What's the hematocrit? Uh, a, a, anemia can result in spuriously high levels in whole blood assays. States of uh, per- uh, peripheral hyperperfusion. That's one of the articles that's in this April edition of Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Uh, but shock states, vasoconstriction, dehydration, and vasospastic disorders can affect the uh, uh, accuracy uh, of our glucometers and of course these are not conditions that we take care of in critically all patients right I mean all of our patients are well perfused none of our patients are in shock or on vasoactive agents or uh, dehydrated of course not well most of our patients are they wouldn't be in intensive care units uh, obviously uh, sample processing delay that should not be a problem with a point of care uh, item in an in intensive care unit what are some of the drugs? Well. Some of these drugs can actually result in a falsely elevated um, uh, uh, glucometer reading, uh, dopamine, mannitol, basically any kind of sugar type uh, product, but mannitol. So, again, there you're looking at. Your patients who have traumatic brain injury, certainly a a patient population where hyperglycemia is clearly neurotoxic, but neuroglucopenia is also very bad. And by administering mannitol, what are you doing? You're gonna have a falsely elevated glucometer reading. Acetaminophen, i.e. Tylenol. Not only in the cases of Tylenol uh, intoxication, like you might see in a medical intensive care unit, but also patients who are in therapeutic Tylenol for fever or Tylenol-based agents, something like a Lortab or a Percocet that has Tylenol in it. Patients who have elevated bilirubin uh, because of primary liver disease, or you can see elevated bilirubin certainly in septic patients, lipidemia, elevated uric acids, and anybody who's getting uh, uh, medications um, uh, with sugars, uh, and even vitamin C, which is something uh, a lot of patients, particularly burn patients or patients with a lot of chronic wounds, uh, have uh, vitamin C to assist with wound healing. Aristotle said all things in moderation. and I think that's wise advice in all things, particularly in regards to medicine. In my brief career, when we started out, every patient in the intensive care unit was virtually on renal-range dopamine. We were convinced that that was the standard and failure to put a patient on renal-range dopamine in the face of an elevated creatinine was basically heresy. We don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore because there hasn't been any evidence to show that it makes any benefit. Perhaps it may even harm patients. And the science in which we predicated renal-range dopamine was nothing more than mythology. Um... We used to maintain people on PEEPs of 25 routinely, and now we've learned that by such high-pressure modes of mechanical ventilation that perhaps we were initiating an inflammatory response and making the ARDS worse. There was a time not that long ago that every patient who was even moderately ill got a PA catheter. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. We used to take these patients to the intensive care unit, and we were convinced that if we optimized them by driving their oxygen delivery up to 666 and their oxygen consumption to 166, that they had better outcomes. Well, the data actually showed we had worse outcomes. We used to routinely let people sit with a blood sugar of 250. And when their blood sugar got to 250, we would perhaps give two units of R and attempt to keep their blood sugar down. Those days are also gone. I think it's a little bit difficult to sit there and jump on the bandwagon that all patients have to be basically in a euglycemic clamp of 80 to 110 in intensive care units using an instrument that really can't validate uh, is more specific than plus or minus 20%. There are certainly inherent risks with that. Um, the literature on this topic is rapidly expanding. Gone are the days of not treating blood sugars of uh, above 150 or 200 But the data to sit there and drive a stake in the ground and say absolutely 80 to 110 is the only way, I think that data is lacking. The NICE Sugar trial is in progress. That is a large multi-institutional trial that um, will enroll 6,100 patients uh, and certainly provide the power that is necessary to take a legitimate swing at this topic. Uh, there are, as I've said earlier, there are very bright people working on consensus conferences from groups such as the Society for Critical Care Medicine and the Association for Predator and Natural Nutrition. There are very bright people working on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign as well, and they have not come to an absolute conclusion as to what those numbers are. Are they going to be between 80 and 110, or are they going to be higher? Is the risk of neuroglucopenia? Worth maintaining to 80 to 110, or is it worth keeping things a little bit more loose? So stay tuned. The jury is still out on this. Uh, and as we uh, um, come across papers on this very important topic, we'll discuss them. Certainly, we're going to be talking more in the future about the role of uh, euglycemia, insulin, in the um, uh, both the medical and the surgical intensive care unit. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Thanks for li- listening. Have a great day.